1: Folk, we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am Cindy Howes, your host and faithful companion. Thank you for listening. Alison Russell is on the podcast today. Wow. Um, I had a lot of nerves going into this interview because there is so much to talk about with Alison Russell. Her story is unreal, it's hard to know where to begin. There is a bit of talk about um, childhood trauma, sexual abuse in this episode, just to, to warn you. She suffered unfathomable childhood abuse, sexual, physical and emotional at the hands of her white supremacist stepfather is chronicled in searing detail for the very first time on her debut solo album, Outside Child. Up until now, she was not able to honestly address this story in her other projects, Birds of Chicago, Our Native Daughters, and Poe Girl. These days, Allison recognizes that she needed the support system in her life in order to process and use her gift to share her story through music. That support system, which she calls the Magic Circle, includes her partner JT Nero and her daughter Ida, her chosen family of musicians, her newly found biological father, an extended Grenadian family, and her ancestors. Mainly learning about her many times great-grandmother Kashiba and the extreme hardship she faced as a stolen slave in Grenada. Kashiba's survival allowed Allison to realize that she also had the strength to reclaim agency over her own story and break the cycle of abuse. We talk about her learning where her abuser came from, a sundown town in Indiana where being black was basically illegal after dark. Her abuser also made life difficult for Allie's mom, who was struggling with schizophrenia but loved music. The song Kathy talks about her mother putting the music away, and she talks about the impact that had on her and on Allison. Allie ran away at 15 and started living on the streets of Montreal until she made her way to Vancouver to connect with an uncle and an aunt who supported her interest in music. She began performing on the folk circuit, formed Girl, met JT, started Birds of Chicago, had her daughter Ida, and joined our Native Daughters. She talks about how being a mom to Ida really was the catalyst of wanting to end the cycle of abuse and face her trauma. She actually ended up charging her abuser, facing him in court, and seeing him sentenced. It was a light sentence, but it validated what happened to her was wrong. The new album is joyful, which is intentional. Everything about the new record is very intentional. Allie thrives in community and has chosen to remain positive and filled with light through this music. An amazing person. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We'll take a listen to a song from Outside Child, Persephone, and then we will hear from Allison Russell on Basic Folk.
0: his grip on me Now I'm running down La Rue saint Paul, Trying to get out from the weight of it all Can't flag a cop Cause I know he won't stop I go see Persephone Tap, tap, tap and
1: Thanks so much for talking to me, uh, Allie. And I've got a lot of questions for you. I don't. We're probably not going to get through all of them, so I'll choose wisely. And some of my questions are actually like pretty long, okay, uh, long-winded. The first of them all being the longest, okay. Um, so I thought we would start where all of our stories start with the ancestors, and that's something that you've been meditating on. In recent years through your art, um, your family tree on your biological father's side has only been revealed to you in the last decade, including your many times great-grandmother, Kashiba, who you memorialized in song on Our Native Daughters. So this sounds like a wild story. Your Aunt Denise like hired somebody to map out your family tree, and you mm-hmm. discovered Kashiba and her history— Emotionally, like, what was that process like for you to learn about this woman? How did it change the way you feel about your life? And how do you continue to honor her?
0: I think it changed everything to have a sense of who I come from and what she survived, what my entire paternal lineage, that side of my heritage, what they survived. It also placed within a continuum and a context for me of multi-intergenerational ancestral trauma, what had happened to me. And that this story of the diaspora, the Black diaspora, is very, very much my story. I grew up, you know, in a in a white supremacist family. My adoptive father was a white supremacist from Indiana, um, in the U.S. And my mom's people are Scottish, and I was the only person that looked like me in my family. And there's a lot of, you know, abuse and trauma that surrounded that. But it also, you know, I survived it, and and I survived it. I think because of the strength of my ancestors on both sides, but to learn about Kashiba was sort of shattering and and it put me back together at the same time because I understood that what had happened to me was part of this continuum, but that it doesn't have to continue and that I was able to have agency that she didn't have. She died still enslaved, you know, and at least, at the very least, when I finally got my courage and strength and resilience together to charge my adoptive father you know, he eventually pled guilty and he eventually went to jail and it was a light sentence and it was a slap on the wrist, but it was an acknowledgement that what he had done was wrong. And she never received such an acknowledgement in her lifetime, you know, and she survived far worse than I survived. And that's a source of of strength, I think, when we really understand that all of us, whatever our individual heritage is, that all of us, we are the culmination of long lines of survivors. That's why we're here. And it's not always a pretty history. It's not comfortable history. But if we try to erase or whitewash or disappear all the painful parts of our past, well, then it also takes the strength and the resilience and the courage in these stories that we need to remember and honor. It takes away the full picture of who we are and the fact that we're interconnected and we're related.
1: My next question is actually about meeting your black family, like, and and thinking about these, like, these differences, some of them are subtle, and some of them are not so subtle. So like you said, you were the only person in your family that looked like you You were raised by a white family surrounded by white people. But in 2012, you were interested in connecting to your biological father, who's from Granada. And it sounds like a whirlwind of a story in finding him. Um, So how did it feel not only to connect with your father's family, but to connect with the country and culture of Grenada, and also Kaya Caters from there, and that's cool.
0: Yeah, well, I, Grenada because I'm, I and I make the distinction in pronunciation because I think of Gre- Grenada as Grenada in Spain, and the Grenada that um, Kaya Cater and I, yes, both our dads are from probably within 20 miles of each other, um, on in, in on Gre- in Grenada, which is you know a small island nation. Uh, that experienced many waves of colonization. There is Arawak heritage on the island, Carib heritage, Tainu heritage. It was named by Spanish sailors originally going by, sailing by, but then it was occupied for a time, I think briefly by Portugal, longer by France, and then for a long time by the British. And one independence, I want to say around... Well, Maurice Bishop came to power in 1978, but I think it won sort of independence a little bit before then. But I'm still I'm still learning so much about Grenada, but it's um, close. The closest bigger country would be Trinidad. Um, It's about 70 nautical miles north and west of Trinidad. And that's where my dad, Michael George, grew up and where Kashiba spent her last days, you know, after surviving. Kidnapping in well, some we don't know where she was sold off the coast of Ghana. She survived multiple sales. She survived, you know, multiple horrific assaults and abuses, and children being taken and sold. And she was we know little bits about her. There's a lot of um, oral history around her on the island because she was apparently quite a skilled midwife, and her so-called owner, her enslaver, would rent her services out to other plantations and he would keep the money, of course. So he enriched himself a few times over with her, her labor Mm -hmm. and um, she, you know, died still enslaved, but she created this legacy. I mean, there's this unbroken thread on my paternal side, the George family, they're very big on education My dad is one of my biological father. I should make the distinction. My biological father whom I met, we actually met, I want to say it was 2010 when we first met. And I mean, that was just, I really had no notion that we would have a relationship. It was almost more, you know, as my partner and I were getting more serious in our commitment to each other. And I knew that he wanted to have kids at some point. I, I never, ever thought that I could be a mother just, you know, based on, my history, and I wanted the, I wanted the cycles of abuse to stop with me, and I was afraid if I had kids that somehow they wouldn't. And there's also a fear of, I mean, the stigma around mental health issues, and there's a lot of uh, schizophrenia on my mom's side of the family. My mom has struggled her, her whole life, not just with the disease, but really with the stigma around the disease and the denial around the disease that compounded all of the harm. And that left her open, you know, to left her vulnerable to a character like my adoptive father, you know, who's mm. a, a very abusive, uh, grooming, you know, grooming this young woman uh, who was estranged from her family because she'd had a child out of wedlock and had very severe psychosis that no one was dealing with or talking about. You know, they were just rejecting, mm. rejecting her. Um, anyway, I'm, t- I'm so tangential, But the. You know, mm-hmm. getting to know my paternal family was just this incredibly healing thing. And again, I, as I say, when I first started trying to connect, it did not occur to me that we would have a real relationship. I, it was really more, okay, is there cancer on that side of the family? Is there are, is there a lot of schizophrenia on that side of the family? Is there hypertension, logistics? <laughs> like, what's my medical history? I don't even know, you know? Wow. And when we were even contemplating possibly becoming parents at some point you know down the line and so really my my outreach or so I told myself was more like wanting to know my medical background you know and what was Mm -hmm. and I also had very little hope of a relationship because I assumed you know that this person would have a whole other life and that there wouldn't necessarily be a place for me within that you know we had never met and I was, yeah, I was, you know, I wasn't grown up. I was almost 30 years old when I started this journey, you know. And my uncle, my pater- my maternal uncle, my mom's older brother, David, is the one who tracked down my biological father because they had all briefly attended a, a high school in Montreal called Monklands, which is no more. There was a, a big fire.
1: So your uncle knew, he knew him.
0: He knew him when they were teenagers, when they were kids. And he had had a Grenadian girlfriend, and Grenada, as Kaya Cater can tell you, and our our fathers can tell you, is a tiny, close knit community. There's only about three hundred and fifty thousand Grenadians in the world, and about um, two hundred thousand of those are expat. You know, are, are living mm-hmm. and working abroad to make livings. So there's only about one hundred and fifty thousand people in Grenada, and everybody knows everybody, or has a few degrees mm. of separation. And so when my Uncle David found his his high school girlfriend and asked about, you know, Michael George and what had happened to him, she said, well, let me just, you know, put out the, I'll put out the word <laughs> me along shake the my, tree. <laughs> I'll shake the <laughs> grenade tree and we'll find out. And she found, it turned out that her stepmom went to church with my father's, uh sister-in-law or something like that you know it was one of these convoluted Mm -hmm. and basically within three days of my uncle starting this line of inquiry I got a call and I was actually doing some of my last shifts uh, for the Portland Hotel Society which is a a harm reduction um, low threshold housing society in the downtown east side of Vancouver that I worked for I was a frontline mental health worker there for about seven years and I would even up until the sort of you know late 2000s going into 2010 was we're still working some shifts there and i was working at a residence where um normally we would have a cook and he called in sick and so i was on the phone with my aunt trying to talk me through how to make a roast turkey and i was, I was a vegetarian at the time and i'd never cooked meat and was Figuring out that how must to have been how disgusting. To, how to do you. this <laughs> for the residents it was so funny and when they were all so worried understandably they're like what are you who where is John the cook what are yeah. you doing here you know you're supposed to be at the front desk and helping take us to our appointments I, was like, I know I'm going to do my best. So there was all this chaos and I get a call in the midst of all this chaos and it's my father Michael George and I'm hearing his voice for the first time. And I said, can yes. I call you back <laughs> after I do this? <laughs> it was just absolute chaos as I was trying to cook <laughs> this meal for 30 people. And um, anyway, I called him back and we began just getting to know each other over the phone and over a series of emails. And I'll never forget those emails where he just laid out a lot of his own history and his journey and how heartbroken he was that we hadn't been in each other's lives. My mother had told him that she was giving me up in a closed adoption and he believed her. And in fact, what happened was I was taken away by child services and I think she was child protective services in Montreal. And that was, you know, when her psychosis was really, I think it was a combination of postpartum depression and untreated early onset of schizophrenia. And so she was doing harmful things to me and she was also a child alone with a baby mm-hmm. you know with no support yeah. no family support and in fact just shame you know just being shamed by
1: mm.
0: you know Quebec I was born in 1979 in Montreal Quebec you know it was there was a lot of uh very harsh judgment around a teenage girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock and has mm. a mixed heritage baby <laughs> you know they were yeah. it was not it was not uh You know, in some ways, I really thinking about this now from a modern lens and what I understand now about privilege in our society. Like she basically in one fell swoop kind of lost her white privilege, you know, that she Mm -hmm. didn't even know she had having me. And she talks about that still a lot, like how severe racism was and that she really didn't know until she had a black Mm -hmm. baby. You know, I was in foster care for four years, almost Almost four years, and then she married this terribly abusive, bigoted character who adopted me, and then proceeded to, you know, abuse me for a decade. So, jeez, and I had to write that, you know, to my biological father. I had to, you know, okay, well, oh my here's gosh. here's my story. <laughs> Sorry, right. it's not it's not your fault, you know. <laughs> it's just right. This is what's happened.
1: You know? He should make his own album <laughs> yeah. about
0: that. I know, I know. My gosh, he's and he's a lovely man. He's a lovely, kind man, and I have two siblings on that side.
1: Um, I'm a gay person, except I didn't see anybody. Around me growing up, that was that looked like me. So it didn't even like occur to me that um, that I could be gay. You know, I also had a like a weight problem, so that was like a huge distraction. Um, which, and maybe in part two of this episode, we can talk about our disordered eating together. Um, so when I was in my twenties, I finally like met somebody who was an out gay person who I like saw myself in. You know, in that was really meaningful and really moving. And I would think, and I could be wrong, and you can totally tell me I'm wrong, that like meeting the black women in your family um, might have changed things for you or, you know, changed your uh, connection with your own identity as a black person.
0: Very much. That is very, very true, I think. Just me, I mean, particularly my stepmother, Tessa, is we just there are so we have we have a lot in common and meeting her and what she has lived through and her kind of her perspective on things, the strength, her pride in her own blackness heritage culture like i was raised my whole life to despise myself you know to mm-hmm. and was told over and over again mm. how inferior black everything was and that i should be uh count myself lucky i mean that was like the, the psychological component of the of the abuse is much more insidious and hard to dismantle in many ways you know your body heals and you leave a situation and that doesn't happen to you anymore but those those disordered thought patterns that have been sure. brainwashed and instilled those are extremely difficult to to defang and get rid of and meeting an entire family of powerful beautiful proud women who had no who were unapologetically Black and loved every part of that was like yeah was completely it was remaking you know it was transformative, it, it continues to be transformative, and mm-hmm. as I, you know I'm in Nashville now and me have a whole community of amazing black women here you know who hear me and see me and a huge part of being able to write outside child came from, you know it it the the kind of protective magic circle of our native daughters, you know, with Rhiannon Giddens, mm. Layla McCalla, who is my dear, all throughout the pandemic, Layla and I, and actually our friend Abigail Washburn have had a kind of mom's like check-in, you know, artist mom's check-in where we would just pretty much every week have a FaceTime and just debrief with each other, check in with each other, love on each other, you know, because it was hard. It's hard. <laughs> but It's also, yeah. we're like, you're not, we're not alone. We have each other and
1: I don't know, Abigail, but Layla is my favorite Instagram mom.
0: She is the, (laughs) I mean, come on. Like, yes, just incredible. And it's funny, you know, Cindy, like for me, the gay community was where I was first accepted and welcomed and not called an N word and not called an Oreo and not called anything, just welcomed, you know just called Sister, you know, it was like, mm. oh, my. and that for me that I went to this after Royal West, I went to this school called Mind in Montreal that was um, moving in new directions. It was an alternative school. There were only about 150 kids Mind. in the whole school. Yes. yes. <laughs> so that's what it was in the same building as Face, which was like the fine arts, <laughs> like fame kind of high school. And we were like one wing of. Of that school and and we were no, we were all, we were all the misfits you know? I know right there should have been one for all the various parts but <laughs> we were basically like the misfit school and that's where I found some of my dearest friends who are dearest friends to this day some of the first people that I disclosed to and started who helped me through met my first girlfriend there you know and fell in love there and you know, I'm 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 right in the middle of the spectrum. I would say between gay and straight, and you know that was like for me the gay. Community, I remember going going dancing for the first time, and we would always go to like to the Olympia or gay clubs in in Montreal, and know to have, um you know to feel totally free and safe for the first time. Mm. Like that was the first time I felt safe, basically. Was
1: Montreal has some good gay clubs.
0: Amazing. It, we, <laughs> we used to go to the Sky all the time and dance, and Olympia. I don't even know if some of those are still there, but like I, I'll just never forget that time of of kind of self discovery and uh, like a consensual sexual awakening where I wasn't being harmed and terrified constantly. Like it just. It was life-changing in every way. And that's where I, I mean, in part, this, uh, the record is like a love song to Montreal because I had access to communities like that. I think of some of my friends who were gay, who grew up in tiny communities, and it sounds like you had a similar experience of not, you know, Brandy had a, nobody. There was nobody, like, reflecting anything about her. And yeah. when people understood that she was gay, it was not accepted. It was a full rejection you know
1: yeah
0: and that was the you know that was the opposite of my experience i had all this trauma around being black and being the only you know but i for me the gay community was like this my first experience of real community and kinship you mm. know and yeah. welcome like unmitigated welcome you know it was just like yeah <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> and i had that resource in montreal you know which which is a city that's been on the forefront of civil rights change, you know, yeah, in Canada. That makes
1: me want to know more about the concept of home. Like over the years, what has your relationship been like with that concept of home of having such like home was abusive, like home was a foster home, home was the streets. Like yeah. how did that concept morph over time for you?
0: I think it really, you know, what I understood was home was my community. I mean, home was my girlfriend's basement when it was 50 below and I couldn't go back to my house with my family where I would be tortured. You know, it was like home was her her basement. Home was Mm. the student lounge at Mind where I would go early in the morning and sleep on the couch and catch up on some sleep. And I managed to get through high school that way. Like home was the Croissant Real cafe where I played chess all night, you know. Home was the graveyard in the summertime where it was quiet and safe, and nobody came, and I could sleep like and then home became the tour van, you know, home became the the my the the band playing together every night and the people that we shared that with every night though that became home. Home sometimes became you know people that took us in after a show and those are some of our best friends in the world like uh our dear i'm going to give a shout out to the stokes family in england they 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 became home for us um mm. for pogrel in our early days and then for birds and now for when i go back with my daughter with our daughter you know they're family now we've gone to their weddings they've got you know we've got, it's like home for me became the community that showed mutual love and respect you know that that became home. Those were mm-hmm. and now home is in Nashville and there's a wonderful com- circle of friends here. I just had a blissful day singing with Kashana and Adia Victoria and Cam Franklin backing up Margot Price on a couple of songs. Like we just had a blissful day doing that. It I was like, this is home. This is c- this community.
1: I do have one question about your stepdad um you wrote in your keynote speech for the women's march um which happened in october of 2020 in nashville that he was twisted by intergenerational violence raised in a white supremacist family in a sundown town in southern indiana so i was curious i did not know what that is i started reading about sundown towns and like couldn't believe what i was reading um what have you learned about sundown towns, and how has that helped you process and understand your own situation?
0: Oh, I mean, they, well, first of all, they're they were everywhere, and particularly in the South, but in the North, too. And, um, yeah, just towns where they made it illegal for Black people to stay overnight. And that it was basically open season. You know, you could be lynched, law ruled. I mean, the history of the U.S. is a history of white supremacist domestic terrorism. And we have to face that, have to face Mm. it, or we can't heal. We can't make better changes. And that is a history that harms everybody. And that was the point I was trying to make. This man was a little sweet child once, right? Didn't spring out of the womb being monstrous, you know? He was abused severely. And in my opinion, that, that intensity of bigotry is child abuse. You know, I think about like the Hitler youth, that was child abuse. Absolutely. Indoctrinating children into this hate ideology is child abuse, causing them to do things that, that, I think these lines of taboo, we have these deep lines of taboo in our human spirits of like, we don't actually want to kill each other. I don't think we do. We don't actually want to rape and harm and hurt each other. I think that that is behavior that is learned and that is reinforced, these cycles of abuse that go on and on and on. I think of the whole history of, of slavery in the U.S. It meant, and there's some really, when you read about the early days of the colonies, and it meant that every single white person in the colony had to be indoctrinated into brutalizing Black people. Every single person had to be indoctrinated into that. And how do you even do that? when half of those children were also the children of the white men that were doing this abusive stuff because they were, as we all know, there's a reason that black folks in the States are on, by and large, quite a bit paler than black folks in Africa. There's a reason. And they had to indoctrinate their own kids into this brutality. That's just wrong. It's just wrong on a human level. And so then you have to, your mind has to twist into all these shapes to justify it. Your spirit has to twist. It sickens people. It's, it brutalizes the enslaver as much as the enslaved, in my opinion. Right. That's what it actually does. And it's a legacy mm. of abuse that we are all collectively dealing with as one human family, inter interrelated, literally interrelated human family in this country. How can you talk about Thomas Jefferson and not talk about Sally Hemings and the fact mm-hmm. that he had an enslaved child who was the, his, his wife's half sister, you know, because her father raped Sally Heming's mother. I mean, it's a multi-generational story and had her in a room in a tiny cell like room. How many kids, six kids, seven kids that they had, you know, who, who he eventually freed. He never freed her. How do you talk about this man as being the great, you know, one of the, fathers of democracy in America without talking about this you hmm. know and the the worst part is you read some of the history written by white men his concubine they'll say like concubine what on earth are you talking about there's no consent there's no there's no possibility of consent when you own somebody legally. right right you know and there's it, it's just and we have to we cannot just deify and glorify these these characters within our U.S. history without there being a ramification. If we are deifying and glorifying men who committed rape and violence on daily on a daily basis, we are enshrining violence and right. we are we are seeing what that does.
1: Your mom, Kathy, and I've noticed that you say mum. Just like I do, I say mom, <laughs> I'm from New England. Yeah. Um so your mom Kathy, you wrote a song about her which you performed on a TED Talk and it's also on a live Birds of Chicago record. Um so that song is all about your mom's relationship to music disappearing, the line repeated, Kathy, where'd the music go? What did that look like in reality and how did her connection impact your early appreciation of music?
0: Uh, I mean, completely, we, our, our relationship was so fraught, you know, she was very, very sick. Um, As I said, I, I think both postpartum and undiagnosed schizophrenia at that time, she went through, you know, a series of different diagnoses, but the worst thing, of course, that happened to her was this predatory man marrying her and um, just spending every day abusing her in various ways, psychologically and physically. But the psychological abuse was the most severe, I would say. And, you know, he, would, he encouraged her uh, addictions, her substance abuse, so that she would be incapacitated, you know, so that he could do whatever he wanted with me. Um, he also would not, he would mock her playing of the piano. He would take her sheet music. He, would, he tried to destroy her joy in music because that was a place where she could escape our relationship was so broken by the time he adopted me. We, we almost didn't talk really much through most of my childhood. It's like she married him and then she gave me to him and that was it. And because mm-hmm. she no longer trusted herself and he had a, a campaign of gaslighting that, that uh, he convinced her, that convinced that, her that she, yeah. yeah. And, um, and one of the worst things that I think he did was try to destroy her joy in music. And those are some of my earliest memories. I mean, I write about it in that song, hiding under the piano and listening to her play because she her psychosis was taking a form of like, she was believing I was possessed of demons and some sort of like changeling creature, which metaphorically that makes all the sense in the world to me when a seven to 18 year old girl is like a mom for the first time and has no idea what to do and has no support you might feel that you have a demon changeling in the crib, you know, not a baby because you don't know what to do. You know, she didn't know what to do and she was very, very, very sick and had been very sheltered up until that point and just had no, no clue. And unfortunately the trend in social work at that time was to just remove kids and put them in foster care, you know, and now there's a lot more understanding of trying to, in whatever ways possible, if it's possible, work with the families mm-hmm. to provide support and services so that the kids don't have to be separated, so that you can change the destructive pattern before it gets out of hand, you know. But um, yeah. but in her case, she just didn't, you know, she had a deep self-hatred. There was so much stigma within her own family around mental illness, which again, on, on my uh, maternal side, that has been a cyclical occurrence in our family i I remember my grandma talking about her mother and and the term she was she was a bit fey she was a bit touched like these were the old terms for what was almost certainly schizophrenia and psychosis you know and that she would lock herself into her room for a month at a time and then come out and everything was you know when she was in a great mood the whole world sang with her and then it was terrifying when she wasn't and you know my mom and I had a very very volatile relationship and but I loved her playing because I it's like I could just feel her love through her music that she couldn't ever express in any other way you know Mm. and I could feel her who she really was like little I could like imagine her as a kid I could imagine you know I felt connection and compassion and empathy for her when I heard her play and And it sparked my own love of music, you
1: know. Hey, everybody. It's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment very convenient you start communicating in under 48 hours professional counseling done securely online it is more affordable than traditional offline counseling financial aid is available licensed professional counselors specialize in depression anxiety relationships family conflicts lgbt plus matters grief self-esteem Anything that you share is confidential, and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash songwriter. Bye. You left your parents when you were 15. It was like a run or die situation, and it sounded like a very difficult, transient time. You talked about it a little bit. But you were making music. Jerry O'Neill, the fiddle player from County Donegal, yes. seems like he was an important presence. Yes. Um, what role was music playing for you then, and how do you think that musical experience of life after you left continues to impact the musician you are today?
0: I mean, it was a lifeline then, and it's and it's a lifeline now. It's just the way it's where I'm happiest when I'm playing music with people that that communion it's like that's when all of the really awful psychological loops of you know dripped poison from my childhood that's when they stop you know that's when all of the just all of the negative voices that's they stop when I play music and I am just in communion with other musicians or between, you know, the playing it and the people listening. Cause that is a, that is very much an exchange too. Um, whether, even if it's through zoom, you know, there, there is a connection and there is an exchange that happens that just, I don't know, it reinforces hope and humanity for me every time. And I'm absolutely hooked on it and I'm absolutely convinced that part of the way forward in a divided world and society is to really hear each other's stories. You know, what you, it it struck me what you said about folk music and that you don't feel like you need to talk. And I think you're maybe saying that meaning you feel like white people have talked a lot in folk music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is that maybe what you mean? But, But your unique perspective is really important. And you're, you know, I think of it as like, it's, it's, it's like the BIPOC LGBTQIA plus allies coalition that's going to like save the world. <laughs> that sounds really grandiose, but I don't think it is. I really think everyone and, and, you know, anyone who's ever been othered, and that's a lot of us, we're the majority, in fact, you know, mm. and those experiences and telling our own stories and our own voices and listening to each other's stories changes perceptions and changes hearts and opens hearts and then you can start to change policies and then you can start to change laws and then you can start to I mean I remember when gay marriage got legalized here and people were freaking out on Facebook saying I'm gonna move to Canada and I was like do it we've had gay marriage since 2005 and we're cool everyone's cool (laughs) come on up like you'll see it's not gonna hurt you in any way like do you remember that like it was just like absolute I mean I don't know. Was, I would think evangelical led just hysteria Oh, you mean the people who were the
1: people who were yes, uh, not into it.
0: Not into it and then saying they were going to move to Canada. I'm like, yeah, yeah. good idea because you'll see right. that many years later, no problem.
1: <laughs> right. Everyone's still alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, we legalized gay marriage long time yeah. before you. <laughs> Everyone's still alive heterosexual um, marriage is is no more danger than it ever was from divorce rates <laughs> you know so
1: yeah i want to hear about your aunt um janet
0: you have or seriously I guess... done your research cindy oh my gosh
1: <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> thank you um so you were able to connect with an uncle in vancouver which led you you're a teen little alley teen yeah got away from the bad stuff yeah um Went from Montreal to Vancouver, which I understand is like going from New York to L.A.
0: Yes. Um,
1: And you connected with your mom's sister, Janet Russell, who was like a known coffeehouse folk singer at the time. She would play like the club passim of Vancouver, like the legendary folk clubs in town, released (laughs) records. She has a a song on Spotify and I listened to it. Yeah, she was
0: just... An amazing. Um, she is an amazing writer, but um, she has and singer. She has multiple sclerosis, and it has been hard for her to, to play. She can't play guitar anymore, but she still sings and practices tai chi. She's a good but yes, singer. she's amazing. And she was my first introduction to to the music community in Vancouver, the folk community in particular. And um, I got some of my first gigs singing the national anthem for. Um, the New Democratic Party of Canada, because <laughs> they wanted someone that could sing it in English and French. So I did that. And yeah, just she introduced me to a whole circle of people. And that's where my musical journey really began. And I started like, yeah. writing some French lyrics for people. And I met Trish Klein soon after that. And she was, that was sort of right around the beginning of the Biga Tanya's. And I used to go hear them play. And You know, when Frazee got pregnant with her son, Saul, they kind of took a little hiatus, and that's when we started Poe Girl around
1: 2003. Mm. This was also around the time where you started uh, learning some instruments, um, guitar, clarinet, ukulele, and banjo, and your main ones now are clarinet and banjo. Um, How did learning instruments change the game for your writing, and how do you connect— with those instruments?
0: I think it really, it just opened it up for me where I was no longer dependent on somebody else, um, you know, right. I was no longer dependent on anyone else to kind of figure out the songs with me, you know. And I, um, banjo and clarinet, clarinet and banjo in particular, they, they kind of, I don't know, they helped me access different parts of the slipstream or the subconscious or wherever it is that songs actually come from. And they help me excavate these, these songs and ideas that come through and different songs come through on each instrument, for sure.
1: So this new record, Outside Child, it's not the first time that you've addressed um, your childhood trauma, but it seems like it's really the first time you were able to, like, really dig in and get to, like, the core of what was happening and, like, really face it in a way that you hadn't before, um, although on... Uh, Poe girl album you did write a song about about what happened yeah. um how do you look at like how you were carrying your trauma and living with it at the time that you wrote that song shame no shame what is it? No, no shame, shame. Mm-hmm. um I- you wrote that song no shame and versus like where you are now with it
0: you know, I wrote No Shame shortly after my grandmother, Isabel, died. And I was thinking about, you know, just the fragility of life and the brevity of it and that I had to start talking about this or I would be sort of tacitly part of the problem. And because I think silence is deadly and silence is an aider and a, and a better of cycles of abuse. And so that was the first time I wanted to try and say it out loud publicly and use whatever little platform i had at the time to raise awareness and i also i was getting into marathon running right around that time and so i ran a marathon and i had um, the you know i raised some money for little warriors which is in this, an organization in canada that that is working to prevent child abuse and provide support for families that have experienced that or kids that have experienced that and um, the I think it was the National Children's Alliance in the U.S. that I raised money for. And I just, you, we did a whole tour around it. But to be honest, I was, it was actually really difficult then because I didn't have the same kind of stability in my personal life that I have now. And singing about it every night just, it really took a toll. And this is, you know, this is before Me Too, this is before the Me Too movement. This is before um, survivors realized that they could, that we could find each other and create strength and coalition by uniting. Um, I was the one lone voice. I was, you know, the one black person in the room on, um, often, and the one, uh, woman talking about abuse in the room. And Mm. we had pushback from clubs. We had pushback from people in the audience. Um, I had a lot of people disclosing to me and I, I was naive about I I really needed to have more connections made with local services that could be of help, too. And that's something Mm. that moving forward with Outside Child, I'm very, very committed to uh, partnering. That's great. You know, as as touring becomes available, partnering in each Mm. city just with some resources and ways to direct people to here's what here's what's happening in your own community and places to get some help if you need it.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a great one in Pittsburgh. I don't know if you know it. Is there to tell me? Yeah. Oh, great! It's, no. Yeah, they're they're great. They work with with women and and children. And um, my my financial advisor is on their board, and he's very involved. And I've gone it's to amazing. a couple of their galas and stuff. But what they do is like really awesome uh, will, for for Pittsburgh. Yeah,
0: I will definitely be partnering with them when I come.
1: I've heard you talk about or mention the fact that you didn't feel like you had um, a support system until recently. And I imagine that has a lot to do with JT, that has a lot to do with our native daughters. But I wonder, um, like, how much Ida has to do with your support system?
0: Huge, huge. Because becoming a mom, I mean, it changed everything for me. And it also galvanized me. Because I don't want her carrying everything that I've carried. I don't want that for her. I don't want that for any child or the next generations. And so it was having to step up to be a mother to her meant I had to try and be uh, a mother to myself more too, you know, more, more loving and forgiving of myself as well and mm-hmm. more compassionate to myself. And it meant that, you know, if I'm constantly telling myself that I'm unworthy or continuing that narrative that was instilled so young, what, what does that teach her? Yeah. You know? I can't have her carrying that. So I had to be braver, you know, or at least pretend to be. (laughs) So it's, you know. The
1: day you realized that, you were probably like, shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, nothing is ever going to be the same. This is a lifelong heavy responsibility.
1: (laughs) Right. You're like, I've always wanted to, like, learn how to sew or process my trauma or learn Chinese. And then, like, the day it arrives, you're like well damn it
0: (laughs) yeah that's right that's right
1: the solo album outside child depending on what day you hear this episode um it is out on may 21st so we're releasing may 20th if you are matt smith from club passim it comes out tomorrow if you're everyone else it's out um so everything about this album seems like super intentional you know i'm looking at the album artwork and like I'm like, why is your hair look like this? Why are you wearing that? Like, why does, why is it say your name? Like, why is like the stylized font? But like, I'm just thinking that like, you're unpacking the trauma of your youth. So the stylized font on the album, the album sequencing, it, I would imagine you were paying attention to all very the details.
0: Much. Very, very much. The story of the cover is, I got to work with an incredible artist named Mark Baptiste. He took those, beautiful black and white photos of the obamas when they were in office he oh he, he shot the cover of this fujis the score he shot the cover of the miseducation of lauren hill he shot the cover of erica badu's baduism and what i love about his photography is the way that he he's haitian american he is his wife jenny baptiste is also an incredible artist and photographer and worked for many years at virgin was and and the connection there is his wife worked at virgin with the head of my label Margie Chesky years ago and Margie and um and Tom Dolan who did the art the cover design um he they he connected us and Mark heard the record and said yes I'll work with her. I mean he, someone I couldn't possibly afford to work with if I were to pay him what he you know what his right. worth is as an you know, his an artist of his stature, but he said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And and this was, you know, we did this during the pandemic. Like tested in, I flew to New York, terrified with face shields and face masks, and you know, t- to do this, and we tested in and bubbled up in their home. His Jenny just was like helping me do my hair for the shoot. He was calling in favors from folks like Rosario Dawson and an incredible a uh, designer named Epperson who did that in- incredible head wrap that I have on the, on the mm. album cover. And these are, um, you know, black designers who, who are, have sort of a mandate of uplifting black women as well. And that just the way Mark sees the the strength and the resilience and beauty of black women was such a, it, to be in that lineage, like alongside people like Erica Badu and Lauren Hill was pretty, pretty wild and it mm. was very uplifting to feel um seen and valued you know and it's he he presented me as though i were you know a regal queen <laughs> and so because he saw me that way i was like okay yeah i can see he just was <laughs> he was like you're that's the strength that you're projecting that's what i see and there's there so it's uplifting it's it's i think it's aspirational for me that's not necessarily like who I walk through the world being every day but it's who I aspire to be if that makes sense
1: I want to ask one more question and I want to hear fun stuff or not fun stuff but yeah I guess fun stuff about Mm -hmm. what it's like to be roommates with Yola
0: oh it's the best (laughs) thing ever we're actually we're all we're quite teary because we're about the our our kind of Basically, for the last three years, Yola has been coming and staying while she was working on her her last stunning record and her latest one that was just announced today. that um, I'm so excited about Stand For Myself is what is her new record is called, and it's stunning. And the, her first single, Diamond Studded Shoes, just came out today. And it just the joyful news of the day, in my opinion. But um, it's been beautiful. Our sisterhood is deep and true, and we have helped each other through this. Pa- so when the pandemic, it's been very intense because, of course, we've been locked down, locked down together. And um, she is just, she's hilarious. She approaches hardship with humor. And she's incredibly good about having boundaries. I'm learning about how to have boundaries from Yola. Like we just all the things we talk <laughs> about, different things that we, and she's she's just a force of good in this world and I adore her and we would do Sunday roasts and she set up archery in the backyard and I learned how to garden. No and Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> badminton. We played badminton through the early days of the pandemic and just... British people know how to hang
1: outside.
0: Yes, they really know how to (laughs) hang outside. And we just spent hours at the kitchen table, like, you know, unpacking, (laughs) (laughs) unpacking life and trauma and history and joy and finding, you know, sharing joyful things with each other that were uplifting and just all of it. Just, you know, we we did a lot of staying up till 3 and 4 a.m., just talking and talking and Uh, getting getting each other you know carrying each other through this pandemic
1: wow okay Allie let's do the lightning rounds okay and then we'll be done okay okay here we go what was the first song you learned on the guitar
0: oh it was um Tracy Chapman's talking about a revolution yeah
1: nice what is your karaoke song
0: Oh, uh, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy by the Andrews Sisters. <laughs> he was a famous trumpet man from my Chicago way. He had a boogie sound that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft, but then his number came up, and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing ravely. He's a boogie woogie bugle boy, a company. Yeah, that's my one. <laughs> Amazing. And it's important to do the Charleston while singing it.
1: You were kind of doing it. <laughs> I saw it. Um yeah. okay. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. And in fact, Millie. Millie the rescue dog. She is our Aww. new
0: child. She's snoozing on a corner right on the couch here. Let me see if you can see her.
1: Oh, I wanna She's see her. Right Look at you. She's like, I'm what are you doing? <laughs> I'm, like, asleep. I'm asleep. I'm asleep. <laughs> I,
0: I have a healthy appreciation for cats, but I'm scared of them if I'm true, if I'm honest, because there was a cat at the foster home who was had been, I'm sure, horribly treated by generations of kids, and would get up on the mantelpiece and jump down and jump on our heads and try and scratch our faces. Oh
1: yeah, I was well terrified. that'll do it. <laughs> <I was terrified. laughs> that'll yes, do cats. it. Sometimes cats are just jerks. <laughs> yeah. They, but you know, if you ever have the opportunity to meet my cat, I would she's love very nice. Your,
0: I would love to meet, and I've met, I've, I have bonded with some cats. I love, I do appreciate them. I do, yeah. And I love, love horses a lot. And whales, nice. and wolves, <laughs> and <laughs> birds of all kinds, <laughs> but not as pets. I would, could never have a bird as a pet. It just doesn't doesn't feel
1: right. 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 Um, what is your coffee order?
0: I don't drink coffee, so usually it's uh, matcha or uh, yerba mate or green tea. First celebrity crush, Leonard Nimoy as Spock.
1: <laughs> it's what just true. It's just true. Nerd. I know. <laughs> uh who is the nicest musician you've ever met aside from jt
0: oh uh, gosh it might be brandy Carlisle. Oh. You no know i mean she's one of the nicest humans i've ever met and she i don't we wouldn't be talking to each other probably today if she hadn't advocated for my record
1: so mm.
0: she has really uplifted me hey brandy yeah brandy Carlisle.
1: first album you bought with your own money
0: Ooh, first album I bought with my own money was Sheila Chandra's, I think it's Speaking in Tongues. Sheila Chandra's Speaking in Tongues. Okay. Check her out. She's incredible.
1: All right, I will. (laughs) Uh, Flying or invisibility? Ooh, flying. Good. Definitely flying. Uh, This is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Cameroon. Oh, Cameroon. It's a beautiful... Where is that?
0: It's on the west coast of Africa. Um, it is stunning. It's so one, it's, it has one coastal part and then it's surrounded by mountains. There's all kinds of ecosystems, um, you know, from sort of like rainforest to just incredible like black sand beaches and mm. it's, it's beautiful and I don't know. We just had we had and an, it was it was a life changing trip. We were just there for two weeks. This was Pogirl way back in two thousand seven, mm. and played the Masao Women's Festival in Douala, Cameroon, in the capital. And I'll just never forget
1: it. It was life changing. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for for talking. And you know, I just appreciate you. You know, every interview that you do, I will listen to because you do just have this incredible way with telling your story and the bravery and the honesty that you do it in is is just beautiful and bold and just don't stop
0: thank you cindy i won't
1: Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. I'm your host, Cindy House. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all the episodes archived wherever you get podcasts, wherever you got this episode, or at my website, cindyhouse.net. And thank you so much for listening. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Bye.